people really think that certain parts of themselves are impractical and useless and they have to give them up when they become adults. They have to get rid of them, but they are part of yourself. You can't get rid of part of yourself and you also can't win a battle against yourself, which is what these people are doing. They're trying to get rid of certain aspects of their personality, certain passions, certain interests that they deem as impractical, but they are core to who those people are. And so what tends to happen over time is that people get very disconnected from themselves and then they get mental illnesses. And then, you know, you see all the problems of the bored office worker. It's the classic trope that they've worked in the same job for 20 years. They hate their life. And a lot of the reason that they hate their life is because they're disconnected from all the things that make them who they are, um, which is profoundly damaging. Um, and it's something encouraged by our society. Like you give up certain things at a certain age. You give up art, you give up music, you give up creativity, because those things will never make you money and they're a waste of time. You give up philosophy, to some extent you even give up religion. And I say that as someone who's an atheist, but even that is sort of given up these days. Um, and instead you replace it with just, with not much, with the practical things, with work, with making money, with getting ahead, with prestige. And those things aren't enough to sustain you and to fulfill you necessarily. Yeah, I'm very curious to learn about what the world looks like according to you as you make videos for other philosophers. And then I'm uh, before we actually get into talking about what that looks like for you, uh, I'd invite you to perhaps describe a space and, that we can sit in uh, whether that's in your mind, uh, metaphorically, that represents a physical space to, to describe that. And then we can sit there, imagine it for a moment and then get started from there. Sure thing. Well, um, I guess the, the place that comes to mind, the place that I most want to go to at the moment that I can't go is uh, the beach. So, uh, yeah, like I live in Sydney and, and the coast and the coastal walks and stuff. It's very uh, beautiful to me a lot of the time. Um, so that's the place that I most want to go, imaginatively speaking. And another invitation for you is to, uh, while you're describing these spaces, get as descriptive as possible. So I'm wondering, what is it a sunny day? Is it a gloomy day at the beach? What are the tides like? Uh, what do you smell? What do you feel on the beach? Is it a crowded beach? Is it a, an empty beach where you can just be at peace and solitude? What do you see when you imagine this place? Well, I'm imagining a, a sunny day. Obviously, the best days are the sunny days for beaches. I think like the the cliff walks in Sydney are really beautiful. So, like if, if you can imagine a, a cliffside with the ocean swell and the, and the waves hitting the shoreline and and the the ocean breeze and the sound of seagulls and you know uh, you know a few people walking around and everyone out and about that kind of image comes to mind. I think. And and I'm curious to know. Uh, how you're feeling in that moment, Josh? Because obviously we're we're um, we're at the moment disconnected in Australia. At least we're locked down. We're in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is that feeling of actually uh, being at the beach and you know hearing the seagulls and and hearing the hearing the sounds of the waves crashing against the cliffs and and walking oh, along? It's an immense feeling of calmness and and tranquility and uh, just a great sense of joy. Um, 
I think being in that environment gives you a great sense of freedom when you can look at the horizon and you can't see anything there. Like there's this just immense space of being like completely free in that, in that environment, which is really uh, captivating. Um, mm. So I think that's a strong part of it. So being in that space and sitting there by the beach or walking, if that's what you, you feel like doing, what, what does the world, according to Josh, Josh Crook, look like? <laughs> so I think that there's, there's so much in that. I think that one of the things that I've got really into lately, which goes to some of the topics you've brought up, is getting more of a sensory experience of the world, so engaging all of your senses when you're in an environment. Um, and just feeling different emotions that come to you in that environment. So we like to think of the world. So I come from an academic background. Uh, I've done a PhD and all of these things. And in that world, it's very objective. It's all about logic and rationality and reason. But I think what's missing from that world a lot of the time is your individual subjective experience of what it's like to go through things and experience things. And so that engagement with the senses, that engagement with your feelings and emotions, and then trying to capture that in whatever way. I like to capture it creatively, but whatever way works for you. I think that that's really important because it gets to something fundamental about being human, which is going through all of these experiences um, and what they mean to us individually, um, which you wouldn't be able to write down in a scientific paper necessarily or, or get down in, a, in, a, in an academic journal where you're, you're not even allowed to use the word I in those environments, in the university environments. You have to distance yourself and you have to be completely objective, but it just misses out a whole part of life. And so, yeah, that, that's really one of the main things I've been exploring in the last year or so is that other part of things and, and, and how to include that in what I create so you might start with a very logical argument but then you can add how that makes you feel and you can add your experience of it and you can add your personal anecdotes and your personal stories to that and that becomes a lot more engaging for people and I found that people really connect with that in a way that they wouldn't to <laughs> a list of figures or a list of numbers or whatever else you might think of as more objective or tangible. Wow, that's so fascinating. So what I hear you say is first that you come from an academic background, which is more logical, more objective in a sense, which almost to me seems a little bit disenchanting when I think about traditional academia and the rules and regulations around uh, expression. Whereas what you have been exploring as I hear it is more of the intersubjective realms of the world of feelings and emotions and uh, sensory experience that we have as human beings and not just describe it objectively from a, a scientific truth point of view, but uh, perhaps a more poetic truth that comes out through uh, expression such as art and, and uh, are also explored through, through philosophy and different um, disciplines that we've created yet somewhere it seems like you're trying to go beyond the disciplinary boundaries of the academic realms into uh, more mythopoetic states, more whole states of exploration of the human uh, condition and, and our experience. 
is that about right? Is that what you're describing? Yeah, I think that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that there are certain emotional truths that aren't captured um, by objective fact, and so, you know, the writer Iris Murdoch says that love, for instance, is a form of truth because you know the entirety of a person and you choose to love them, and that's a truth in itself. And it's often instinctive. We have a lot of things that are instinctive and gut reactions and sort of subconscious reactions to things that we like to think of as uh, fake, but they aren't fake, they're core parts of who we are and, and our gut instinct and our gut reactions and our emotions should really inform some of how we see the world. They shouldn't be the only way of how we see the world because then that could lead to, to, to strange conclusions, but they should kind of build out our perspective. Um, and I think this is why I wanted to just discuss romanticism with you because that's where I found this most codified in a form that actually resonates with me because I've been having these ideas for a long time but then when I discovered romanticism as a movement I was like actually this actually <laughs> aligns with so much of what I think that I, I didn't think that it had been written down and codified in this way before uh, which was really interesting. So with that in mind, then, um, I, I think, uh, so romanticism is a really interesting topic. I've explored it through, through the lens of love and romantic relationships with people, but obviously it encompasses a lot more than that. And I was thinking while we're in this space, while we're on this beach and, you know, we can hear all these things, we can see the waves crashing against the, against the cliffs and you can see them breaking and you hear all these sounds of the birds and nature and the wind and, you can hear it everywhere. You can feel it. You can smell it. Um, I was wondering with that in mind, with being in that specific place, um, can you tell us a little bit about what romanticism is from what your understanding is? And um, we can explore that through this context of being in this beach setting. Well, it's, it's a very similar idea. So what it is, is well, what, what it originally was, was a reaction against something. So the Enlightenment happened in the 1700s and people were very much concerned with reason and logic and scientific understandings of the world. And so people gained a really broad understanding of scientifically what a wave was like or what the beach was like in a scientific sense. But what that took out of the world was a kind of magic to experiences because just because you know scientifically what that's like, that doesn't encapsulate the full experience. And what the romantic movement was about was trying to regain some of that magic that was lost. And their view was it was a re-engagement with the senses in an external sense, um, but also the internal exploration. They have this really beautiful quote, so Novalis, so these are the German romantics, which were like the 1790s. And Novalis, one of the key figures, says, you know, if you can imagine the universe is not the universe inside of you, um, inward goes the sacred path. And, and he continues in that sort of frame of mind. And what it is, is that we like to think of everything in a subjective way, that they're scientific facts, that they're scientific truths. But really, everything we come to in life, we come to from our own perspective, and we come to bringing with us our internal experiences, our history, our memories, and, and all of that. And that affects how we perceive things, that affects how we take in new information. 
And so you might have a really nostalgic memory of when you were a kid at the beach. And so when you go, you know, in your 80s to a beach, that will completely change your experience compared to someone else who doesn't have that experience. And so a lot of this is a re-engagement with the self, a re-engagement with senses and memory and nostalgia and all these things that seem at first to be useless. Um, a lot of our society is moving towards a state where we see these things as a waste of time. You know, there's a lot of discussion in political circles about how philosophy and music and art and all of these things, they're kind of a waste of time. They don't make enough money. They're not useful. They're not practical. Um, but I think that that actually misunderstands the entire purpose of those fields, which is to re-engage us with the whole entirety of what it means to be a human being. Because being a human being is, <laughs> on one hand, the practical things of staying alive, but on the other hand, it is your experiences, it is your memories, it is falling in love, it is all of these deeper things that happen in your life. And without those things, life loses all of its color. You can imagine a world where no one fell in love, where no one had any memories, where no one had nostalgia. And that is a very gray, dark world to live in by comparison. And so what the romantics were saying is that we actually need to restore the magic to the world. We need to create art and music and all these things to capture these experiences in a way that we can't capture in a scientific article, in a way that we can't capture in a journalistic article because those things don't go far enough. They don't capture the whole experience, they capture part of it. It's one of the big differences between fiction and nonfiction. You can watch a documentary and you'll get part of an experience and then you can read a novel and you'll get even more of that experience um, because novels have the senses, they have the smells and the sights and the sounds and that builds things out beyond what a documentary has, which is just sight and sound. And one of the difficulties with modern technology and, and where we're going is that we're only engaging part of our senses when we're looking at a screen. We engage our sight and we engage our sound, but we're not engaging taste and touch and, and, and the rest of them. So, so that's part of the problem. We're disconnecting ourselves from the full human experience. Um, and it's yeah, one of the... I was just going to jump in and say, yeah. um, I, it reminds me very much of this book by a Spanish philosopher, I believe. And it's a book called La, La, Util La Utilidad de lo Inutil, which means like the utility of what is not useful, something like that. It, <laughs> and basically it's uh, about this idea of how there, there are these perceptions that we have in our society, that there are these things that are deemed as not of utility, whether that's being a, a artist or whether that's being a philosopher to even, to even some degree. But he points out within this book in a very, in a very, um, in such a beautiful way that this is actually missing the point, exactly what you said, but please continue. I just wanted to mention that. Very yeah. So, so, I mean, like I've, I've had these experiences in my own life. So, you know, one of the things that happened, I went to law school um, and I remember the final examination when I walked out of that law examination, two people were talking to each other and the one said to the other, I guess we have to give up all our hobbies now, we're entering the real world. And I found that to be a fascinating comment <laughs> and it stuck with me for months or years at this point. And I think what it is, is that people really think that 
certain parts of themselves are impractical and useless and they have to give them up when they become adults. They have to get rid of them, but they are part of yourself. You can't get rid of part of yourself and you also can't win a battle against yourself, which is what these people are doing. They're trying to get rid of certain aspects of their personality, certain passions, certain interests that they deem as impractical, but they are core to who those people are. And so what tends to happen over time is that people get very disconnected from themselves and then they get mental illnesses. And then, you know, you see all the problems of the board office worker is the classic trope that they've worked in the same job for 20 years. They hate their life. And a lot of the reason that they hate their life is because they're disconnected from all of the things that make them who they are, um, which is profoundly damaging. Um, and it's something encouraged by our society that you give up certain things at a certain age. You give up art, you give up music, you give up creativity because those things will never make you money and they're a waste of time. You give up philosophy, to some extent you even give up religion. And I say that as someone who's an atheist, but even that is sort of given up these days. Um, and instead you replace it with just, with not much, with the practical things, with work, with making money, with getting ahead, with prestige. And those things aren't enough to sustain you and to fulfill you necessarily, which is the problem. Um, C.S. Lewis has this brilliant quote where he says, when I grew up, I gave up childish things, including the fear of being childish. Um, and I, I think that sums it up basically. Um, when you become an adult, you shouldn't be afraid of childish things. You should engage with that. You shouldn't, because it's childish to be afraid of looking young or looking, you know, that's what we do when we're five. We're like, I don't want to look young. I want to be the adult in the room. I want to, you know, and to, and to still think like that when you're 18 or 20 or 30, like there's something problematic with still keeping that line of thinking, you know, when you're an adult, you shouldn't have to try and defend yourself in that way. Um, so it's very fascinating, the narrative that you've shown to me here. Um, what I see is a spectrum or almost a dichotomy where on one hand, there's this philosophy of being very objective, very utilitarian focused, right? What will this give me? What output will this drive? How much money will this make me? And there's this notion of survival, right? Just keeping life going, just surviving on the day to day, which as you rightly pointed out, that is a problem because uh, we have this thing, I think it's called the hedonistic adaptive mo uh, places in our mind, these uh, ways that we just adapt to situations. And that's a double-edged sword because on one hand, we lose the magic and mystery and beauty, the phenomenological beauty in life because we're like, oh, I've been there and I've done that. So what's cool in that, that it's just another thing to go to and just be in. And that's a problem because as you said, we become adults that disenchant reality and become disconnected from reality. Whereas on the other side, you describe these childlike states, these more artistic, creative, playful states, which someone could even say religious. And I think that's a whole other topic of what religion on a... A meta level without getting into details can do for one right to have this sense of communion to have the sense of catharsis to have experiences that go beyond the everydayness of our lives have ecstatic experiences through art through dance through poetry and enter these uh, states that go beyond the everydayness so what fascinates me a lot about what you're saying is that you said you come from a background which was 
more objective, right? You said you studied law and you are, you were or are, I'm not sure about that, but an academic, which people associate more with the objective utilitarian focused um, thinking. Whereas on the other hand, you, it seems like you're yearning for something that goes beyond that and to capture uh, our experience of the day-to-day, -day, not in just very objective scientific ways, but in more poetic and artistic ways. And so I've not seen too many people go from this realm of objectivity to come to this philosophy of romanticism and re-enchanting life and living in ways that are more playful and childlike and just being more connected to others. Um, and so I'm, I'm very curious to know your story. What got you to this place? What got you to thinking and feeling about the world in this way uh, beyond just academia? What made that transition happen for you? I guess there've been a few fairly confronting experiences. Um, so I would say just seeing what's happened with my generation as they've grown up and gone into different things. Um, one of the confronting things for me was how early this happened. So even when I was 18 or 19, there were people my age telling me that, you know, you should give up writing. It's a waste of time. You won't make any money out of it. Um, people said things like, uh, you don't make money out of ideals or ideas or things like that. Um, I had someone say that I had Peter Pan syndrome for wanting to write a novel, which was an interesting experience. <laughs> There's sort of strange experiences that are very confronting. And then on top of all of this is our experience of technology, which is probably the most disconnecting part of our society. Um, so we go through our days confronted by constant entertainment and constant stimulation, but at the same time, we feel disconnected. Um, the philosopher Byung-Chul Han puts it really well, which he says that um, today we are bored, but nothing is boring, or something like that. We are bored even though we're constantly entertained. And so all of these experiences kind of then need to reconsider in the academic realm, one thing that became very obvious is that that type of logic and discussion doesn't connect with people. So the average academic article in the humanities is read by 10 people, um, which is a horrifying statistic because you're talking about professors who've spent years researching a topic to write about it for 10 people to read it. And there's something wrong with that. There's something about how Communication itself is connecting with people. It's about bridging gaps. It's about making connections. And if your communication doesn't do that, there's a problem with it. And I think that's the foundational point, that that's the problem with academia that I found, that there's, if it doesn't connect with people, there's a problem with the communication. And the problem that I saw was that people were artificially making things seem more detached than they actually were. So let me give you an example. Say you're an academic who has spent years researching your niche topic of, I don't know, recently I came across someone who was re researching the, the travel patterns of cockatoos in Sydney, for instance. <laughs> this is a very niche topic, you know, looking at birds. Say you're passionate about birds and you spent 20 years researching it and you write an article if your article comes across as gray and detached and objective, 
then one question to ask is, is that honest? Is that true? If that's your passion and you've spent 20 years on it, then is it truthful to write an article that's gray and detached and, and objective, strictly scientific in that way? Or is it more true to say, look, this is a topic I'm really passionate about. In this article, I will endeavor to be as objective as possible, but you should know I'm really passionate about it and I love birds. <laughs> like, and, and which is more engaging, the person who admits that up front or the person who starts with you know, a, 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 a graph of statistics or something that'll disconnect the reader immediately. Like there are different ways of going about things. And one thing that's become obvious as well through my exploration of short story writing and creating uh, video essays and, and these things is that storytelling is the most engaging form of, of communication and academia has no storytelling. You're never allowed to tell the story. You just have to report the facts. And because you're not telling something as a story, you're not going to connect with people. You're not building the narrative into it. And to some extent, the narrative is discouraged because it's really hard to build a narrative on evidence <laughs> because narratives sometimes play with the truth a little bit, which is a problem, admittedly. But uh, you sometimes can, and I think that there are situations where you can. You know, if you use the bird example, you could tell a story about a bird very easily with evidence and facts behind it. Um, and documentaries do that all the time and they have wide viewership. So I just think that there's something wrong there in academia. There's a mistake that's made where people are mistaking objectivity for good communication. And I think the two things are very different. Yeah, so I was gonna say this relates to an idea that like we've been exploring on the podcast and it's sort of a part of like the mission of what we're doing. And a part of that is to create new narratives and specifically why we use the term narratives is because narratives are linked to stories and what we've observed from our experiences um, and that not, not only links no, that stories and narratives not only link to fictional writing but it relates to how we actually perceive the world and how we even think of the world and how we even recall memories so if we recall memories we paint we if we're looking about our childhood we think about the stories that happened within our own, within our experiences and we construct something, whether that's how our parents treated us or how we got along with our siblings or the, the dog that we had as a pet, we construct these stories and they form so much of how we experience the world. They inform not only the objective truth, maybe like what the story was, but how we felt, what we were thinking, how, what we heard, what we were smelling. They encompass so many more of these sensory um, experiences like you were talking about that it adds this this other dimension almost it's, it's not unidimensional and I think what I heard from what you were mentioning about how academia may um, not be truly objective in the sense that it's taking apart or not including all these elements of storytelling whether that's um, including the, the the story behind the birds where where these birds coming from or whether that's the emotion that the person who was writing the the story felt I, I think it's really interesting because I think that's how uh, it's been our experience of just, that's really how we see the world. And so I wanted to know, like for you, for you, like in terms of constructing narratives, do you see this not only in academia, but generally in the world? Um, and I'd, I'd be interested to know your take on storytelling as a medium of how we express our objectivity. Yeah. And subjectivity. I mean, 
I mean, one of the, the problems with the academic argument is that if you give up storytelling to other fields, then you're kind of giving up the whole game to some extent. Um, there's one video I did. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess I should say that I, I, I make these video essays on a variety of topics and I tend to try and summarize the thoughts of authors and, and, and summarize their worldview to some extent and then give my own opinion a little bit on that as well. And I made one on, on Avatar and, mm. and the Marvel movies. And what I was trying to get at that is that currently the Marvel movies are like modern myths, right? They're our modern mythologies. They're our gods, for lack of a better word. They're like the secular gods. We like worship them and we buy the idols of them and we put them up in our houses. And like they're the secular version of gods. And one of the strange things about the Marvel movies you know, which are popular all over the world at the moment, is that the heroes in them kill a lot of people and they kill a lot of people who are weaker than them, which doesn't make sense because usually when you think of someone who attacks someone weaker than them, you think that they're a bad person. But in these movies, the superhuman people who have the greatest strength, the greatest resources, the greatest whatever, kill a lot of people who are weaker than them and then the audience applauds afterwards. <laughs> And so there's a weird disconnect where sometimes our stories have bad moral examples, I would say, or bad messages behind them, uh, which justify all sorts of obvious political decisions uh, <laughs> that come afterwards in terms of foreign wars and all of these things. And there is a connection. There's a connection between our mythology and our myth-making and our stories, our pop culture stories, and the reflection in reality of decisions that are made and how the public responds to certain decisions. Um, and a lot of our modern mythologies are us first them stories, good guys and bad guys, good and evil, but the good guys do evil things without consequence. Um, and the bad guys sometimes do good things and get punished for it. And so, and so <laughs> our moral messaging has become very confused and, and a lot of these stories aren't as good as they seem at face value. Um, this is all very abstract, but I can use the example. I mean, the classic example is the modern Star Wars trilogy where you have in the first movie, the example of the stormtrooper, who's the typical bad guy, suddenly reforming himself into a good guy within the space of, you know, five minutes. And then at the end of the movie, they blow up a planet with millions of stormtroopers. And that leaves you questioning, like if people can rehabilitate in this way, is killing millions of them a good decision or a bad decision? <laughs> um, there's just very basic questions that you could ask of these things, which don't seem to be asked. And I think that what the kind of, I don't know if you would call it the intellectual class or whatever you want to call it, when it goes into this objective, rational realm, it seeds ground and it doesn't question those things and it allows those problems to go unquestioned in society. And so when we have two decades of war in Afghanistan, for example, and only now people are questioning it, um, when we have like all of these actual things happening, our mythologies don't seem to be in line with our moral instincts and that creates a disconnection. Um, what also happens and what's happened increasingly over time is that people have said that it's 
none of your business to comment on these things that only experts are allowed to comment on certain topics and everyone else has to remain silent. The problem with that again is that you get rid of emotional truths. You can imagine a situation where the military expert says it's a great decision to bomb a city and the mother of a soldier going to war says maybe we shouldn't be involved in the war. Who has the higher claim of truth in that situation? I think that's a really fascinating question. You could say that the mother has an emotional truth and the military expert has some sort of objective truth, but who should win? And I think that that's the tension that I'm getting at. There's, there, there are certain situations where there is an emotional truth and an objective truth and they're in conflict with each other. And instead of discussing that, we as a society have kind of ceded ground and said that the experts should make the decisions on our behalf. So I'd like to invite you guys to pause for a moment because I've been following the ideas we were speaking about and I see a sort of trifecta where there's three main, like I'm getting quite abstract and intellectual, which is sort of the opposite of what we're talking. But in any case, I'm going to give it a shot because uh, I think it contextualizes or conceptualizes it quite interestingly. So on one hand, we're talking about the nature of truth. How do we know what we know, right? The realm of epistemology, where within that realm, within that one end of the trifecta, we're speaking about mythopoetic, emotional truths, artistic truths, or on the other hand, we're talking about scientific objective truths. So epistemology is something we're exploring as I hear it. But then very interestingly, we went into the, the conversation, went into the realm of um, more storytelling, which sort of gets to the more artistic truths that we, we communicate through, right? There's a creation of knowledge, discovering new truths and ideas that may help society. And then we need to des uh, sort of give that those ideas out. We need to uh, disseminate. I, I don't know if that's the word. I'm missing it. But uh, basically spread the ideas or the knowledge. And right now in academia, it is very objective lecture based things, whereas it could be more story based things, more um, sort of narratives that don't just capture the facts, but also the feelings behind it. So on one hand, we have epistemology. On the other, I'm thinking of narratives and communication. And then the third one, which I find the most interesting uh, that you brought out, Josh, was morality and how what we know, how we know, how we communicate it impacts our day-to-day -day decisions, how we, how we think about the world, what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, and um, basically impact our everyday life, our everyday decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. So given these three sort of, I'm not sure, do you guys see these three buckets of truth and epistemology on one side, then there's communication and storytelling. And then the third one is morality, right? That's sort of the trifecta. If we can find something that um, cha challenges all three or sort of creates harmony between all three, because all three seem to be pulling at each other from one end or the other and creating tensions. Um, I'm wondering for you both, how do you think these three ends can come in harmony and sort of allow us to, to re-enchant life through these romantic notions, tell better stories and live more uh, just and moral lives while having the, the feelings and emotions intact and not uh, you know, throwing them away saying, oh, this is all bullshit, this is all flowery stuff that will impede our day-to-day -day lives. How do you guys think we can find that balance? I mean, I mean, I can give it a go if you want. 
yeah, yeah, <laughs> I no, think, go ahead, Josh. <laughs> there's, there's one example which I think ties everything together for me, which was um, an example that I came across in law school and, and how it's taught. My, my PhD is on legal education. I've looked at this in depth. One of the things that happened which was really concerning is if you remember back to 2015, there were two Australians on death row in Indonesia. And at the time, the Australian government was saying that these two Australians had reformed and they shouldn't get the death penalty and they should be released from jail. They, they had been caught on drug smuggling charges, but in prison, they'd done really good deeds and they'd helped out other people and they'd really kind of learned the errors of their ways. And so the Australian government was petitioning the Indonesian government to not kill them. In law school at the time, what I found was the people around me who'd been taught this objective, strict, logical, rational approach actually thought that they should die. And the reason they thought that was they, they said, you know, the law is the law. Uh, you've done the, the, the crime, now you have to do the time. And, and they rolled out all of these kind of cliched statements. But what came behind it was this entire education system, which for years they were taught that morality and the law were different things that when you study law you just you just study what the law is and how it's applied you don't bring in your own thoughts you don't bring in emotion you don't bring in anything like that and the way they were taught and assessed was exactly in line with that so if you brought in your emotions or or moral objections or anything like that in an assignment you would lose marks so they were taught not to bring those things in and they were taught to differentiate the two and what that led to was, in my view, an endorsement of injustice and authoritarianism. They were taught that you just accept what the law is, you accept what the government does, you don't question it. And so that was the end result. And I think that that's a kind of horrifying result. It's immoral, it's kind of inhuman to some extent to not question things, to not ask those quest basic questions. Um, and where it came from was this strict logical approach it came from this idea that the law's power comes from itself. Every law can be justified by a prior law. <laughs> it comes from legal positivism, which is the, the legal philosophy behind it. But it's this idea that every law can be prior, justified by a prior law and the highest source of law, the constitution, can presuppose its own validity. And when you think in that framework, it's very logical, it's very rational, but the problem is, it's not real. It's not, it's not real. Law is political. Law comes from politicians. Politicians make the law. We vote them into power and they create it. And, and it affects society and it create, can have just or unjust outcomes. And justice and injustice are moral outcomes and moral decisions. They're kind of separate from logic um, to some extent, although they can be related. And so that's what I found. I found this disconnect between the two. Uh, to use another example, there were cases that we studied where, you know, child sex offenders escape jail time because of legal technicalities, very small, tiny things. Um, and in class, people were like, well, that's just how it goes. And I was kind of shocked. <laughs> I was shocked by that. I was like, I mean, it's obvious that this guy did it. All the evidence is there, but the evidence can't be used because of some, you know, stupid technicality that that was caused by some insurance company who was trying to avoid, you know, getting sued at one point in time and is now being used now. And it's all these weird things 
they're all logical, they're all rational, but they're just wrong on some basic level. Um, and I think that that's how it all ties together. Uh, if that makes sense. I don't know if I explained it yeah, very well. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, uh, so I'll, I'll give it a shot at summarizing. So I, I, I heard a lot of things, but going returning to the trifecta that you talked about Shashwat. so we got the epistemological truth aspect then we got the narratives then we got the the other one of morality so how that ties into what you said josh what i understood was that you brought up the case of how those two australians were on death row or in prison and they were potentially could be put to death because of a drug smuggling charge and because of the the way that the legal education was taught within Australia, it led a lot of students to coming to the conclusion that was one that was based on purely uh, logic or maybe one of like black letter law, like following the law very strictly word for word that led them to come into the conclusion that, well, um, yeah, they did the crime. So now they got to do the time and now we've got to put them to death because you know what? Tough luck because you broke the law. And that led you to coming to some, quite interesting conclusions about how our legal system is set up because if specifically if it is actually taking into account all the truth aspect like we were mentioning before like how true is this if these people that are showing reform they're doing good deeds if they're doing things that are in accordance with our i guess values or in accordance with what we would deem as someone that is morally redeemed um why is it right for them to be put on put to put to death and especially why should they be put on death just because of a technicality, because of the way that the law is specifically structured, as opposed to taking into account the other things, uh, whether that's taking into account all the, the, um, the feelings, the moral objections towards the claims. And that just led to, led to this conclusion that you brought, like what is, what is right and how do we, how do we determine that? Um, I don't know if I encapsulated everything. Was how was that? Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think I think what you come to is this conclusion that justice and the right thing is a combination of all of these things. It's not mm. just one of them. And if you follow one too religiously, you can get to unjust outcomes. Basically, yeah, absolutely. Um, be before we dive into this, because this is such an interesting topic, I wanted to transition because I think we started off at the beach. And now we're in this weird limit, liminal space where we're talking about justice and morality. And I don't know if the beach is the most appropriate place to discuss this. And I guess what I'm, I'm envisioning is some place, I don't know, in like ancient Greece where we're all amongst like a, like we're in, we're amongst uh, all other street philosophers and we're sort of discussing the, the, the notions of what is justice and, um, you know, things of that sort. I'd be interested to know from both of you, what are you feeling? Like, where are we right now physically? Like if we're going to imagine a space where we are, where are we? Well, we're definitely in a more abstract place. I think, <laughs> I think I would agree with your direction. Maybe, maybe the Greek marketplace of debating with, with, with people there. Um, yeah, yeah, certainly we've moved away from the beach. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> what do you think shashi while while you were doing this sort of space transition i had like a playful little interesting thought which is what if all these intellectual public intellectuals and lawmakers and these judges and uh, you know lawyers and politicians instead of sitting in an academic like space which is very objective and in suits and ties what if they were all sitting at the beach 
and doing their day-to-day <laughs> lives at the beach, right? Like in clothing and attire that people wear at the beach and they were talking about that. I started thinking about how space and the roles we take on as human beings have a profound role on the decisions we make, the, the feelings we have and the way we think. And that's why this thought experiment or not even thought, right? I, I would rather call it an experiential experiment of putting ourselves in different spaces, in different attires, in different costumes, in different times has a profoundly uh, different effect, even though it's through this 2D reality of the computer. I wonder just as a sort of tangent what do you guys think would happen if all these like very objective people who usually sit in the courtroom or in like uh, in ancient Greece very objectively are talking about intellectual ideas? What if we threw them into like very romantic spaces that sort of probe very aesthetically pleasing feelings and then had the conversation? What shift do you think that would have on the way we started to live and the, the laws and beliefs we had thereafter? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me was what Josh said when he was describing uh, the uh, earlier about um, about the beach and how you would have maybe a young boy who visits the beach and then when he's 80 years old, he visits the beach and that sort of has a profoundly different experience to someone that maybe didn't grow up on the beach. So, I mean, my first, my first response is it really depends on the place and I feel like each place will re- resonate differently with different people. But I would say more or less... Uh, that depending on the situation, I think if it's with the same people, they would be more or less predisposed to having the same sorts of conversations with each other, because I think it's a social dynamic that is set up. But I guess maybe to expand the question a bit more, to expand the thought, what if we were able to engage everyone in a place simultaneously in a place that they uh, resonate with deeply? So maybe it's like this, like, like you put 30 people in a room and they had a VR headset, and every person could visit their own place of, um, I guess, solitude, their own place of like uh, comfort or place of, uh, so, I guess, warmth is one way to put it. And what if then once in those settings, once they've been able to visit all these different places, they've been able to connect with that more subject in a subjective experience, those experiences they had as a child or as a teenager, things that connected with them res- and, and it connected with them deeply and then had those conversations, I think things would turn out slightly differently. But yeah, I mean, I'm just this is sort of just a conjecture at this point. But yeah, what about you, Josh? I think that there's more to it. I think that that's the starting point is to have experiences and to be in these different places. Um, but one thing that the romantics were keen on is a couple more aspects. One is the inner journeys to kind of connect with your inner self and reach a kind of equilibrium inside yourself. And the other is to see the interconnectedness of things. So it's not just about your own experience. It's also about other people. And it's also about nature itself being a connection to other things. Um, It's kind of like, you know, if you're on the Australian coastline and you're looking at the ocean, you're also looking at the ocean that's in New Zealand. (laughs) Like, It's kind of like everything is connected. and, And that idea takes you beyond yourself and beyond your own experience. So your own experience is the starting point, but your own experience should connect you to something bigger. Um, and if you can do that, that's when 
morality comes in again and all of these ideas because then you start caring about other people and you start caring about other people's experience of the world as well um which i think is really important i actually think that um yeah i agree to both of you and i i actually wonder what if could that actually transform and like bring that equilibrium that we're speaking about right when we were talking about epistemology and and morality and storytelling and the the kind of thinking and being that we're being as human beings um i wonder if we actually shifted the spaces that uh that we were in what would that do right i think it was marshall mcluhan or someone who said first we shape our spaces and thereafter our shape the spaces shape us so i think it's so important that we architect and design spaces that actually probe a certain way of being and so instead of having disenchanting classrooms and courtrooms that seem very threatening in a way or very uh, industrialized mechanized uh, sort of systems instead of having those i wonder what if we could all just be at the in the mountains in the middle of the mountains for example or at the beach and have this sort of outdoor setting where we're not just connected to classrooms and computers and the board and the professor but rather we're connected to nature and there's a whole different contextual shift in the way we start speaking and i mean i could take this one level up right if we're trying to reconcile with these tensions and think about morality from a greater perspective not limited to disciplinary boundaries and our very small thinking that we often get into in intellectual realms and had a rather more transdisciplinary view and uh, to do that maybe we could all be astronauts in space looking at this blue dot as Carl Sagan would say floating in space and then thinking about okay given this contextual shift given that i am a part of something way bigger than myself now how do i behave now can i be more compassionate towards others and realize that you know this is not these separated silos and industries that we need to be bound under but rather they are something bigger and if that shift could happen i wonder um what it would do to the way we lived as a society and the laws we created and the education systems and knowledge systems and morality systems that we created but it seems like the more romantic way of looking at things which may not actually work but yeah uh that's my take and i'm curious to know how that what, what do you guys think of that i mean i think that changes things dramatically one one example which is a, a kind of an obvious one when you think about it is how in courtrooms judges are always positioned higher than everyone else so they're actually like literally <laughs> off the ground you know up a few steps compared to everyone else in the courtroom and it's that position of authority over everyone and it and it demands respect in the same way as when you walk into a cathedral the very high roof <laughs> commands respect it's it's the exact same sort of psychological pull that's being used um whereas the opposite of that if you're in an informal environment with everyone on the same level literally then you you get different outcomes and you get different decisions and people would talk to each other differently um so that does have a drastic effect i think yeah no i'm just i'm still really i'm still quite interested in the the topics that we were exploring earlier in regards to trifecta and after josh's um story and extrapolation in regards to like the uh the to two law students and um the conclusions that law students came to as a result of that and i feel this sort of tension still between these all aspects of truth 
and epistemology as well as stories as well as morality and i'm just wondering uh, if in some practical sense like obviously this is just us coming up with this this uh these three topics in conjunction with each other but i'm interested to know like what do we do about that? And maybe a question is like, how do we, is this maybe a question of how romanticism connects with justice? I'm not too sure, but I'm, I'm just trying to think like, yeah, how do we reconcile these so, three things? For me, a lot of the problem that I saw was that people weren't telling the full story. And I think that this is often the case when you talk about strictly logical and rational systems, usually it's not the full story. Mm. Um, what they were talking about specifically was the decision that the judge made in the case. They weren't talking about the punishment afterwards. They weren't talking about where the came from. They weren't talking about anything else other than that kind of one moment, that one decision. And so, yeah, you can take one moment in time and analyze it to death and put all this logic on it and this rationality on it. And you can prove to yourself that you've come to the right decision. But that's very different from telling the entire story. And what I was confronted with again and again in law school was you would have very simple cases of people fighting over a piece of land, for instance. And what's the end result of that? We never got asked that. But the end result is that someone ends up without a house. You know, someone ends up homeless. That can be the end result of that question. And instead of focusing on that, focusing on the outcomes, we just didn't talk about it. And instead of talking about where the law comes from, the law is really a system designed to, to some extent, um, protect certain interests. And some people benefit and some people lose out. And to view it as strictly logical is to ignore the entire story, I think. Mm. In Australia, a great example is the story of Indigenous incarceration. Mm. So. Indigenous people make up 3% of the country, but 29% of the prison population. Um, And so in a strictly legal positivist mindset in law school, you would learn that, you know, the law has been applied and that's the end of the discussion. Mm. But that's actually the start of the discussion and it's actually only the start of the story. So to only focus on part of the story is to kind of ignore the full reality and is it is to ignore the truth of the situation Hmm. Um, yeah you could imagine a happy story that has a sad ending and only focusing on the ending or vice versa and you wouldn't have the whole story you know uh, you could imagine watching the last five minutes of the movie and coming to conclusions about the entire movie that's Hmm. the mistake and that's a fundamental mistake Like you can't do that. You can't, (laughs) if you watch the end of a movie and you've decided you understand the entire movie, then I don't understand where you're coming from. Like that doesn't even make sense. (laughs) But that's continuously what we were being asked to do is to watch the end of the movie and and describe the entire thing and to come to some conclusions about whether the entire thing was right or wrong. And it's like, well, good luck reviewing a movie when you haven't seen it. was absolutely and i mean funny enough movies also ties in i mean i don't know if this was intentional or not but obviously it ties into the theme that we were discussing about stories themselves and movies and narratives and uh like you obviously were talking this in the context of the of of law in the context of the australian legal system and obviously this can apply to things of justice you you likened it to 
uh, you talked about the indigenous incarceration rate, which I think is the most indigenous people, the most overrepresented population in the entire world, if I'm not mistaken, from what I last researched. And obviously that means that there's something that's going on. And, and what you're saying is that people are only looking at the last part of the movie and saying, well, this is sort of a, a closed case of what's going on. We don't need to look into this further. But, and, and you rightfully pointed out is that you have to watch the entire movie to figure out what's going on, which is, uh, which is ironically a very logical conclusion, but it's the logic that also is used. Uh, people that use logic in that sense also say that, you know, if you just watch the end of the movie, you can also come to a conclusion that, you know, it's, it's a cut and close case. So what I'm hearing is that we have to watch the whole movie and this doesn't only apply to the, to the law and the legal system, but it applies to everything else. And I'm wondering from you as well is how can we potentially tie these into broader systems, not only within the, the discipline of law, but into life in general? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's one of the big things that's happened to me personally is exploring this has brought a lot of kind of color back to my life that wasn't there. Like, I think if you grow up in these <laughs> education systems and you learn all of these ways of looking at the world, your world becomes very narrow and you lose out on a lot of your own experience. Um, one of the funny things that's happening now is companies are kind of realizing this. So you'll probably have seen that companies are bringing in mindfulness seminars and things like that because they want employees to understand the environment they're in and all of that. And that's obviously kind of a bastardized version <laughs> of what the truth of that is, um, which is, which is really interesting. But <laughs> what it comes down to is, when you're experiencing something in your life, understanding the totality of that experience. So if you go to the office, you know, in a modern company, one of the imperatives is that you should be happy at all times and you should be kind of have that corporate positivity about everything all of the time. And obviously that's fake, like people, that's not real um, in the same way that people do interviews and they're, and they're always positive in ways that aren't real either. Um, one of the important things about real mindfulness and the real teachings, which come from Buddhism and Eastern philosophy, is that instead of suppressing your emotions, instead of suppressing certain parts of yourself, uh, you actually accept all parts of yourself. You accept all of your emotions. You accept all of your reality. And I think it's something similar to that. When we try and be super objective in, in any parts of our life, whether that's at work or whether that's in our romantic relationships or whether that's with friends or whatever else. If you just have that objective, rational point, you're actually trying to suppress parts of yourself. You're trying to kind of disconnect from the whole experience. And I think by doing that, you're missing out on life to some extent. To go back to the example of the two law students who said that they'd give up their hobbies when they joined the real world, I think that there's this huge imperative to give up a lot of yourself and to give up certain aspects of yourself. And I just think that that's really unhealthy. And the opposite of that and what the romantics seem to be suggesting is a more, more in line with Eastern philosophy. It's to accept all parts of yourself. It's to accept all of your emotions. And it's actually 
ironically through accepting your emotions that you become calm rather than through suppressing your negative emotions that doesn't work like and it's it's ironic because you think it would work and that companies seem to think that that's the way to do it but i don't think that that's the way it works i think it's through acceptance and through through that sensory engagement again um, so yeah i think it can apply to any parts of life i don't think it's limited to the law and justice system by any means i think probably that's the most abstract actually <laughs> so to go back to the trifecta i heard us cover sort of the base points well so one is the feministic epistemological view in terms of how do we know what we know and what do we accept and making emotions as a part of our daily life and acceptance of our imperfections and then on the other hand it's the storytelling aspect of things and how do we disseminate this truth this research this idea that we have now found this truth that we have discovered and uh, film and cinema is an interesting way to think about this through the metaphor because um, Josh you said it is you had to see the last part of the film and decide whether this is right or wrong which is the third piece of the trifecta the morality piece but uh, sticking to the movie piece the narrative piece the story piece I think just playing with that idea I think what you were given was not even the end of the movie you were maybe just given the objective facts that we write in the script to build that movie right whereas the movie is so vast it there is a dimension of internal life within the movie which is why i think cinema is something we don't need to be taught how to watch it is very natural for us to just look at the screen and get into the story and feel certain things when we are in that story in that narrative so it seems like within the story of this uh, case there must have been so much within people that they experienced and why they did what they did. And there's this whole internal life that is usually not looked at from a very objective external view and decisions are made only on that external view. But given that we're speaking about this sort of feminist view on things, uh, acceptance, acceptance of emotions and looking at the internal experience of our day-to-day -day lives or of, of just reality in a sense, how do you guys think this would impact the moral piece, the legal piece? Because on one hand, laws are quite objective. There is a uh, distinct right or wrong. Whereas when we get into internal matters, as in like inner life and emotions and, and more compassionate view of things, we get into this gray space where perhaps the law may not be able to navigate through. So I'm wondering if we were to bridge the gap between these two base pieces of feminist epistemology and looking at the entire movie of the internal experience, the, the whole experience of what actually happened, how do we convert that into a decision? Because now no more is it a white or black. Now it's like the gray space, the liminal space that we, we get into, which things become more complex in and decisions become harder to make. So how do we come to a consensus in such situations, according to you guys? There's a, there's a story that I think uh, connects to these two ideas quite well, and it's about this particular justice system. Um, maybe, Josh, you can help me out. It's not, it's not retributive justice. It's not distributive. It's where, you, it's where the offender and the defendant come together, and they... Uh, uh, yeah. So I, the, I, I mean, there's a form of, of justice uh, that's been developed in Australia called circle sentencing, um, which is used in Indigenous communities as well. And it's the idea that the, the offender turns up and the, the victim turns up, and so do elders of the community and community representatives. And they basically have a discussion of what happened. 
And so the victim gets to say how they were impacted emotionally and physically or psychologically or whatever else. And the offender as well gets to almost kind of talk through things. And the idea is that you could almost get someone to realize the harm that they have done through that uh, more story-based uh, justice, really. You're going through the stories, you're going through how each individual was. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and there was a story from, so one of my, one writer that I really love, Matthew Side, which I talk about quite often, there's, a, there's an episode he wrote on his podcast and there was about this English couple. And I think it's just good to illustrate the story with an example of there was this family that had a son, I think he was 18 or 19 years old. And one night he went out and um, in the course of the night, he was, uh, he came across, I guess, a group of other young teenagers and got into a confrontation that led to him actually um, being, uh, getting an altercation with this group. And eventually he died as a result of the, of being assaulted. Um, and this took place over a number of hours and it followed the parents and their, I guess, quest to, uh, their quest to seek justice. And it talked about how they went through the traditional justice system, how they took the two, they, they found the offenders and they got them sentenced. Um, they, they were sentenced as a result of, of the, the death of their son. And they felt this sense of uh, this general sense of um, dissatisfaction in the sense of it didn't feel like it, it, I don't know what the word is to describe this, but it's, they just, it felt like unsatisfactory. It's like, now what? Like, yeah, the offenders were sentenced, but like what actually happens now? Like, I still don't have my son. We don't have our son anymore. And it, then it tra tracks their story eight or nine years later, they're put in contact with the community legal center or something. Uh, and that focus on restorative justice, which is very sim similar to circle, uh, a circle sentencing where what happens is you bring the offender and the defendants together and they have a discussion about what happened, right? And um, that they ended up doing that and they were able to come and find a lot of catharsis and a lot of, um, they were able to get a reconciliation of what happened. And, you know, the, the, there was a really touching moving part of the story where, the parents actually hugged the person that murdered their son and they said, I forgive you. And they said that that was like the turning point in that, in their whole experience of their son passing of, we can actually move on from our lives. And it's almost like a part of our lives was missing up until that point where we were able to forgive that person. And to me, it is essentially this uh, illust it illustrates the point of um, uh, what you were talking about, Josh, about, you know, just following the, the, the black letter law, just following the law as it is said, and people coming to conclusions that may be unidimensional um, and not really considering the bigger picture and only looking at one part of the movie. Whereas in this story, it showed how these parents were able to reconcile their feelings of their loss of their son through connecting with the person. And it wasn't, and it wasn't connecting through the prosecutor uh, prosecuting the, the, the offenders, but it was through them actually connecting on a much deeper human level with the offender. And in fact, hugging him and, and saying that they forgive him. And even the offender, them, even the offender himself did say afterwards that um, I felt like I, my, my life was stopped and I can now start living my life again. Because once he was able, once he was forgiven, he was able to live. And it was the same for the parents. 
And so, I mean, there's there's not really, um, I mean, that's so I like to... the story, but yeah, you go on, Joshua. Yeah, this is very fascinating. It connect gives me a lot of other ideas uh, and thoughts. So the first thing that came to my mind, uh, which Xavier may rightly know, is nonviolent communication and how this methodology uh, allows what Xavier you were talking about to happen in a in a very cathartic way. Where I heard a story where Marshall Rosenberg, the founder and writer of nonviolent communication, this book. Um, you know, he was mediating a case where this man had raped this uh, woman so many times. And basically, he was able to empathize with this man and um, said things which completely transformed him. And he started crying and crying and weeping and talking about why he did what he was doing. And ultimately, what it was, was that he was not doing it because he was just getting some thrill out of it. But it was from a deep place of his own suffering because he was uh, made to suffer. And he ultimately said that he felt so much suffering that he wanted to inflict that pain upon others so that they can feel what he was feeling. And he just chose rape as the way to do it. So my point being, uh, it seems like there needs to be a shift in our legal systems in the way we come to consensus and deal with conflict uh, by recognizing people as people rather than uh, as interesting labels that the legal system gives to people, right? The prosecutor or the offender and the victim, which serves a purpose, but I find those labels and those um, names that we give to people quite unidimensional or like putting them in a box that you are an offender right now and she is the victim, which I get why they say that, but if we could remove that label is only when I think we can connect with that person on a human level which thereafter, I think there can we can have these sort of um, circles or restorative justice uh, practices that go into that gray space and go beyond the binary of the uh, the legal system. So, yeah. yeah, that's where I think we can perhaps close that trifecta. Yeah, and I mean just to add on to that, I mean I would challenge that this should only be confined to the legal sense because, like J Josh said, even that is slightly abstract, but it can be applied to all areas of life where we consider. Um, all parts of the movie, but I'm curious to know what you're thinking right now, Josh. Yeah, I think that that's fascinating. It's a great story, and I think it's I think it's really true. Um, from from, I mean, one thing that which is quite funny, if you think about an everyday conflict with someone, what is the easiest way to resolve the conflict? Usually, the easiest way to is to apologize, which is the kind of emotional response to the situation. In a legal situation, if you sue someone. Say you sue your neighbor because they built a fence on your land. That's a classic legal case. <laughs> um, so you're really angry at them. They did this thing without your permission and you sue them. You're like, I've got to get them. And, you know, what you really want is an apology. But in the legal system, what you're going to get is money. So you get money paid to you. Usually you don't get an apology because they don't want to admit fault and their lawyers say don't apologize. Um, and then you get a non-disclosure agreement so that you can never talk about it again. So, so that, that kind of train of logic is like the exact opposite of how you would solve an interpersonal conflict, which is like apologies, you know, being able to talk about it to your friends and family to kind of get some support or whatever. So you can see how it's the exact opposite situation and, and how the clinical, you know, you're going to get paid money and then you're going to, you know, that's going to be the end of it doesn't really resolve the inner emotional turmoil of the situation. 
and doesn't resolve the conflict. In fact, it escalates the conflict, obviously. Your neighbor will like, hate you for the rest of your life. Like, <laughs> that's the result of the, the legal case, you know, example. Uh, so so there, there are obvious examples of how the legal system's kind of strict, outcome-focused, instrumental view leads to quite a bad outcome, I guess. Um, sometimes it's the only option, and people often say this, you know, it's the last resort when everything else has failed, you know, you've talked to your neighbour a hundred times and then you, <laughs> you sue them, but, uh, which is, I guess, fair enough, but you can see situations where a different approach could be beneficial. So just to add to that, I think um, going back to the idea of romanticism and the space and the labels we take on, it's interesting. We have this legal systems that design where you said the court, the judge is sitting above and uh, people in black robes and very objectively there with an agenda and sort of this disenchanting space to deal with conflict, right? I have, let, let's say I have a conflict with you. It's quite absurd to think about it this way. I'm hiring someone, paying that person. The other person is hiring someone else. And those two are gonna fight with, with each other and try to get as much value out of it and leave, have this sort of uh, zero sum game. I win, you lose. And then even thereafter, I think it's still negative sum because really no one wins. Both parties are left sort of um, frustrated, even though may, they may have this uh, momentary pleasure of, oh, I just won and I just made so much money, but there's so much internal trauma and frustration that they're bound to now, which just seems quite absurd and uh, illogical to me. So I'm quite interested to see what could happen in the future when perhaps romantics, romantic philosophers and poets and whatnot infuse themselves into these legal systems or even beyond. And perhaps the solution to this could be sitting at that beach or sitting outside that courtroom, seeing these picturesque landscapes, removing the, uh, the personas of a persecutor or offender and all these different things, but saying, okay, you are another human being. What happened? How do you feel? What is going on for you? And connecting with them on the human level and then reconciling the conflict, reconciling that tension and going back to harmony again. So that being said, uh, I think now we are transitioning from outside the courtroom and reconciling and uh, what we were thinking about in terms of this trifecta and the tension. Uh, and perhaps we could go into the third space that we were thinking about, which is what does your utopia look like? And to describe the utopia, uh, the ideal world, if you want to call it that, and you can feel free to philosophize it or take it any direction you like. Uh, I'm wondering if you could transport us into a space in your utopia and perhaps we could sit there and then and then look at your utopia and philosophize romanticize and poeticize it sure i suppose i could i think i think for me you know beauty is fundamental and people and community and people treating each other well so <clears throat> it's hard to get a clear picture, but I guess, you know, beautiful architecture, beautiful scenery, uh, nature and landscape and people living uh, together in that space would be a kind of utopian image, I suppose. Um, and, and I think that, <laughs> I guess, to tie it back to some of our earlier discussion, probably less screens and less technological interference between people and more discussion and communication. Um, would be part of that picture in my head. We'd be interested to know what exactly this utopia would look like. What does it consist of? And what would people be doing in it? And what is this utopian maybe future or in the present? What would you like to live in? What area of what would this place be? 
So, <laughs> well, for me, I always picture Italy when someone asks me about Utopia. I think Italy is very beautiful, so that, that helps. Um, but I think that as well, like, you know, with buildings on a more human scale, um, so, you know, uh, a maximum of four stories, that sort of thing, and, and places where people can discuss and then come together and, and um, you know, a more community environment, um, along those lines would probably be the image that I, I tend to get. Um, I think that there are lots of ways that we could prevent conflict in our society in, ter in terms of inner conflict and outer conflict. And I think a lot of that has to do with connecting closer with other people and understanding other people's point of view. So something built in with that in the environment or the architectural space probably as well. So Josh, I'd like to invite you to go one step ahead. So I see the image of what you're talking about and I get a feel, but I only get an artistic feel. Now I'm wondering on a sort of systematic level, what would change for you, right? Like let's say you were Aldous Huxley writing a book like The Brave New World or you were uh, Sir Thomas Cook, oh, I forget his name, but uh, the guy who wrote Utopia, you, if you were to design a place and have certain laws and systems, uh, whether that is in one field or on a political level or, or anything like that, what would that look like systematically for you? What would your utopia be in that situation? So I think, I mean, with these discussions, you always get back to education. So I guess the broad view would be to bring in some of this human aspect to education, trying to understand other humans better and building that into the education system, rather than being too technical or, or, or too objective, I guess. Um, and I think, <laughs> I actually think art and music and all of these things add a lot to our lives in that sense. So adding that element to a society and supporting that and funding that, I think goes a long way to reducing certain tensions um, and reducing certain hostilities. Um, so I think that would be part of it as well. Um, <laughs> so funding to the arts, uh, a, a more rehabilitative justice system, I would say, um, and, a, and an education system that teaches you about the whole human and and, and I guess to our earlier discussion, stories that reflect where we want to be and, 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 and reflect who we want to aspire to be rather than our current mythologies, which seem quite negative when you look at them too closely, <laughs> which I have a tendency to do. Thank you for, thank you for painting that picture, Josh. And I think um, going back to our previous discussions and also, um, just touching on like the world that you painted i i'm i'm hopeful that hopefully we can get there and i think one step of of getting there is to have discussions like we're having today and engaging in those sort of uh, notions of justice and engaging in education engaging in philosophy or even an art and things that may be considered to have no utility we're bringing those conversations in place to create new narratives about what these things mean and what value they bring to not only us as individuals, but as at a society level, what they bring to everyone. And we can hopefully uh, reduce or maybe phase out notions of corporate well-being or things like, um, yeah, things of that sort. But yeah, I mean, apart from that, I would like to, I mean, thank you so much for 
having the conversation with us. This was really, really interesting. And um, I would love to, I mean, I would love to talk for longer, but uh, <laughs> with keeping time in mind, I'm sure we should probably wrap things up soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for, for having me on. It's been a really interesting discussion to have. So I've really enjoyed it. Uh, that being said, Josh, the last thing I wanted to invite you to share is uh, if you have any plug, even though I don't like that word or uh, any message to the world, anything you'd like to show off, anything you'd like to advertise, anything that is alive in you that you'd like to share with the world? Yeah, so I mean, I write a lot on these sorts of topics, philosophy, literature, and technology mainly. Um, So I do that on my website, which is newintrigue.com. You can think of it as new and intriguing ideas. and I'm doing video essays on these sorts of topics as well on YouTube under my own name, um, so Joshua Crook. And uh, yeah, so if people want to take a read of what I've done and, and, and listen to these sorts of topics, yeah, they can take a look. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, I feel energized to see the sort of shift you are talking about and re-enchanting life with these romantic beliefs and bringing that magic into our day-to-day systems. So I'm very thankful to you to share all this with us and create such beautiful content that you just shared. Uh, I would recommend everyone to go and check it out on YouTube. I've watched a lot of your videos and I found it to be very, very, very interesting and aesthetically pleasing as well. So um, yeah, thank you so much, Josh. And I hope we can continue these conversations because this is the purpose of creating this podcast in this community space to to engage in such dialogue and and bring about that change rather than just hope for that change yeah thanks so much